It's part two on pure worship. It's 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to begin in verse 19, and we're going to finish the chapter, which is to verse 28. Pure worship part two. Uh, if you have your Bible with you or something to look on, would you stand to your feet if you can, and we'll read the text. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 19. Paul writes, Do not quench the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.20. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, 23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Do that right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much for your living word. It is powerful. It is potent. It goes to the deepest parts of our hearts where we really need the work to be done in the inner man, in the inner person. We need that sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit to help us because we battle the world, the flesh, the enemy. We battle our own pride. There's many things that can quench the Spirit, and we don't want it quenched. We want to fan into flame the gifts of God. We want to make sure that your power is manifest in our submitted lives, and that is the endeavor of pure worship. It's to be a man or a woman who is in communion with the living God, manifesting Jesus Christ in our lives, and it is a battle, Lord, but the battle belongs to you ultimately. But we know you work with us. You ask us to surrender and to follow and to be diligent. So help us find that uh, balance this morning. Help us open our hearts to your word. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to your church in this moment. And I just want to take a moment to lift up our president and our first lady and many around them who are not feeling well and dealing with the coronavirus. We, may you have mercy on them. And I also pray, Lord, for our country, because we are so divided. There's so much uh, anger and division, and I pray for civility. And I pray maybe this would be a moment where we could actually wake up and give each other some grace. But would you help us in all of those things to discern what's good and what is evil and to cling to what is good? In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, last time we were together, we looked at the three positive exhortations in 1 Thessalonians 5. If you take a look to set the context, it says, Rejoice always, 16, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but this week I was trying <laughs> to remember those verses. Rejoice always when I didn't feel like rejoicing. Pray without ceasing when I was prayerless. In everything, give thanks. This is God's will for you. If you wondered what God's will for you is, this is it. These three little powerful exhortations or imperatives are so important, but they're also very challenging, amen, to everyday life, to try to always be rejoicing, always be praying, always be thankful. Those are the three positives. Now, we're going to get into the negatives in a moment, but before we do, the overall theme here is worship or sanctification, and this is a quote from R.C. Sproul on essential truths of the Christian faith. He says, since holiness is not found in ourselves, we must be made holy. The one who works to make us holy, to conform us into the image of Christ, is the Holy Spirit. As a third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is no more holy than the Father and the Son, yet we do not normally speak of the Holy Father or the Holy Son and the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of God is called the Holy Spirit is not so much because of His person, which is indeed holy, but because of His work to make us holy. It is the special work of the Holy Spirit to make us saints, 
He consecrates us. The Holy Spirit fulfills the role of sanctifier. Our sanctification is a cooperative venture. We must work with the Holy Spirit to grow in sanctification, close quote. Scholars would say in sanctification, there's positional sanctification being made right with God by grace, practical sanctification where we're being made more and more holy as we walk out this Christian life, and prospective sanctification, which is our future full redemption of our bodies, where the curse and all the junk will be no more in the millennial reign of Christ in the kingdom to come. That's prospective, that's future. Right now, we are in the process, if you're a Christian, of being sanctified. These verses are about that sanctification process and about the Holy Spirit working it out. And the first negative exhortation, you can tell it's a negative by the words do not, is do not quench the Spirit, literally the Spirit not quench, or if you have an NIV, it says do not put out the Spirit's fire. The word quench here is a word in Greek which means to extinguish, to put out, and it has the idea of stifling or suppressing divine influence in your life. There is a way that you can order your life to be very open to the things of the Spirit by opening your Bible, for example, opening your heart to worship, going to Bible studies, going to church, making sure you're trying to offer yourself every day as a living sacrifice. And then there's another way to stifle the things of the Spirit, to close out those things in your practical everyday life. And let's face it, we know a lot of believers that sit in churches every weekend, but their, their midweek life has little uh, to do with the power of the Holy Spirit and being led by the Spirit. And that's what we really want to see. So we want to see it in our everyday experience. That's captured in this idea of always. Rejoice always. Pray always. Give thanks always. This is the idea of a daily walk, not just uh, church attendance where you punch a card or say, yeah, I was there. No, this is more about a life of worship. And so we don't want to stifle the work of the Spirit in our lives. We don't want to throw the blanket, if you will, on the fire of the Holy Spirit. This is symbolic. The Holy Spirit was manifest as fire, for example, in Acts chapter 2, something like tongues of fire on the heads of the early church. And we don't want to put it out. We don't want to extinguish the flame we don't want to put a cover over the lamp. We let it shine. The positive injunction is in 2 Timothy 1.6. If you're taking notes, it says, fan into flame the gift of God. So we got to fan the flame. And if you've ever maybe lit a fire up in the mountains, you have that little thing where you can uh, pump air into the fire and that kind of pushes the flame up. It, adds, it fans the flame. That's what we need to do as Christians. There's an old chorus that many of you who have been around the church know, and it's this. It's, light the fire again, O Lord. And I think we could sing that probably multiple times a day. Lord, light the fire again. Let that burn in my soul. Fan into flame the gifts of God. In the second century, Hermas maintained that both the doubtful mind and the angry temper... Grieve the Spirit, for he was given as a cheerful or joyful spirit or to help us. The same kind of thing might be said well here of loafing or immorality or other sins about which Paul had occasion to warn his friends will quench the Spirit in anyone's life. And as a result, you will lose spiritual power, spiritual joy. There will be a loss. What is the Spirit's fire, you might be asking, and how does one put it out? Well, the context goes on to make plain that the activity in mind chiefly here is one of prophecy. In fact, the very next verse says this. It says, do not despise prophetic utterances. This is one way we can put out the Spirit. Generally speaking, it's something like this. I'll talk about prophecy in a moment and some of the debates about modern-day prophecy. But if a prophetic utterance goes out from a pulpit, let's just say we, we all agree that when the word of God is foretold, when it's preached on, there's prophetic utterance that goes out. It's the word of prophecy. It's the living word of God. And if we despise that, if we say, ah, 
I don't want to hear that, or no, I'm not going to implement that, or that doesn't apply to me because I'm special. Then what we're doing is despising a prophetic utterance. We're saying, no, that doesn't apply. Or I will stifle that, or I will look away, or I will put the blanket on that. I'm not going to let that burn in my heart. I'm going to try to shut that out. I'm going to try to turn up the volume so that I don't, I don't have to listen. Maybe I'll think about something else so that that word doesn't truly permeate my soul. That we could all do, right? Jeremiah said these words, he said about God's word, and it was tough for Jeremiah in his day. He said, a burning fire shut up in my bones is how God's word is. I can't hold it in. It cannot be quenched or controlled. An example of a ladder of Amos 2.12 is found in some of the people of Israel condemned the prophets. They said, for example, Micah 2.6, you can look at Amos 2.12, you shall not prophesy. They didn't want to hear it, so they said prophesy no more. Or in the New Testament, preach no more in this name. We don't want to hear any more about this Jesus this crucified one, this risen one, you will preach no more in this name. And they said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you can be the judge. But for us, we cannot help but speak the things we have seen and the things which we have heard. I must, I am compelled to preach the gospel. Amen? Because the gospel saves. Does it make people uncomfortable at times? Sure. Does the word of God sometimes cramp my lifestyle? Yes. <laughs> right? It's not always comfortable, but it's a fire, and part of the fire is cleansing in my life, rejuvenating. When a fire is in the right place, like in a fireplace, it brings warmth and comfort. You could say it this way, don't block the cup, don't stop the flow, don't stifle the flames. Don't quench the sanctifying purposes of the Spirit. Don't smother His work, either in you or in somebody else. If we hold, for example, uh, resentment in our hearts, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, which Ephesians 4 talks about. We can cause pain to the third person of the Holy Trinity by unresolved anger, and we're told not to do that. So here you get a little bit more of an insight about the cooperative venture of sanctification, which just means to be made more holy and holy and holy. So we're not to quench the Spirit. Number two, we are not to despise prophetic utterances. Do not despise. The word despise there in Greek means to make of no account, to esteem lightly, to set at naught, or to despise utterly. In 1 Samuel 2, verse 30, God says, Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. There's a way that a sermon can go out to a mixed multitude. One person is finding illumination and warmth and fire, passion, if you will, in it, and another person is saying, I don't want to hear that, I read nonsense, right? And that is largely based upon the condition of our hearts. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, Jeremiah 23, 17, you will have peace, and as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say calamity will not come upon you, they prophesy falsely. Jesus put it this way, no one can serve two masters, Matthew 6, 24. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. Remember, you cannot serve God and mammon. You just can't do it. You will hold to the one and despise the other. Whether you don't realize it or not, you will secretly despise it in your heart. Now, there was a man after God's own heart in our Old Testament. I want you to turn to... Uh, several accounts. The first is in 2 Samuel. So you got the first five books of Moses, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, then you have Kings and Chronicles. Let's turn over there. A familiar story, 2 Samuel chapter 12 of David. So David saw Bathsheba bathing 
he was enticed and he was with her and he attempted to cover it up uh, by some clever ingenuity. It didn't work. He ultimately used the enemy's sword to kill Bathsheba's husband, which was Uriah. Uriah was on the battlefield fighting for the king, and David, in order, in an attempt to cover up his sin, killed Uriah. Nathan the prophet came to the king and told him a story. Many of you are familiar with the story about uh, neighbors. One was rich, one was poor, and this, these, uh, the poor family had this little ewe lamb that's actually fitting with Bathsheba's name. And this little ewe lamb was a pet to them, and it ate with them at the dinner table and so forth, like a, you know, a beloved pet. And the rich family had some visitors, and instead of taking from all of their major flocks, they took the one little ewe lamb from the poor family, and they killed it and roasted it and fed it to their guests. David heard the story, and he was very angry. And he wanted restitution to be paid. And Nathan, in a poignant moment in Scripture, said, he goes, that man will pay fourfold. And Nathan says, you are that man. David was staggered. Nathan 12.7 of 2 Samuel. You are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. It is I, 2 Samuel 12, 7, who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives, into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why, and here's the key for our text, have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Why, verse 9, have you despised the word of the Lord? That's David, who, by the way, wrote half of the book of Psalms. How is it possible that a man after God's own heart could be in a position to despise God's word? Because generally speaking, whenever we live in rebellion to what we know God says, we're despising it. We're at least lightly esteeming it. David did something like this. Yeah, I'm the king. Yeah, I'm the sweet psalmist of Israel. Yes, God's done all this stuff for me. Yes, he would have given me much more. But I got to have her. Because I'm the king after all. And I could do what I want and be with who I want. And he, perhaps in those moments, he found justification. Or maybe the rules don't apply to me. And God said, no, they do. You've despised my word. Verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword, there's consequences when we do this, brethren. The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. When we despise God's word, essentially we're despising God because the word of God is from God. You've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now, I want you to keep turning to Second Chronicles uh, actually, let's, let's first go to 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings 22. Let's see another example, and I'm, I'm going to give you some Old Testament examples of how people despised the prophetic word, and then we'll jump into some modern application. 1 Kings 22, verse 1. Three years passed without war between Aram and Syria, or, or I'm sorry, Syria and Israel, or Aram and Israel. 1 Kings 22.2, and it came about in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel, that's Ahab. Now the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know uh, that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of the king of Aram? So he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle? Judah and Israel were two separate kingdoms at this time, at Ramoth Gilead. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people are as your people, my horses as your horses. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire first for the word of the Lord. Let's make sure that God is in this. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, these are all false prophets, and he said to them, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? They said, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat 
uh, he, he could see through these guys. He said, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? Not just a bunch of yes men who will tell you what you want to hear. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I, what's your Bible say? I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said to him, let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor. Interesting, holiness is what comes after the threshing floor in Hebrew, in the word picture. At the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chanah, Chanah made horns of iron for himself and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the Arameans until they are consumed. Go, king, it's going to be great. And all the prophets were prophesying thus, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Here's another grape. Let us fan you with a couple of fans. Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold, now the words of the prophets are uniformly favor." Favorable to the king. Hey, before you go in and speak, just so you know, we're all in agreement here. The king feels wonderful. We've been encouraging him. We can get a little symbolic with him. Go up, king. It'll be great. It'll be peachy. It'll be fantastic. Tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. So they, they take Micaiah. They, they knew he, was, he had a you know, reputation for speaking truth. And they said, hey, just so you know, don't upset the party right now, man. Everybody's uniformly favorable. Please, end of 13, let your word be like the word of them. Speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go up to Ramath Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered and said, go up and succeed. And the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Then the king said to him, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? They saw through it. Because basically what was happening here is, Okay, you, is that what you want to hear? You just want confirmation? All right, go up. It'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be great. But they knew. They knew he wasn't telling the truth. So they said, No, give us the truth. And he said, I saw Israel 17 scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord says, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. You go up, you are going to be scattered and brutalized. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, see, <laughs> did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Rats, 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 rats. So inconvenient. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramath Gilead? I know these are tough verses, but here it is. And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out. And be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now therefore behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit. If you want to know what's going on here, you, know, you want to know why all 400 of these men tell you what you want to hear. It's because it's deception. It's a lie. It's a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. And the Lord proclaimed disaster against you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chinaah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you enter an inner room to hide yourself. Then the king of Israel took Micaiah. He said, Take Micaiah, return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this man in prison. Feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. I knew it. I knew he wouldn't tell me what I wanted to hear. Put him in jail. 
Give him bread and water. In fact, not even a, a piece of bread. Give him breadcrumbs and water. And when this is all over, I'll go to the prison and I'll say, See, I told you, you were wrong, Micaiah. Micaiah is like, if you read the rest of the story, he's like, We'll see. And you know what happens? Ahab goes on the battlefield and he tries to disguise himself. And the enemy sees through it. And an arrow flies and hits him between his armor. And he dies that night. He despised the prophet. He despised the word of the Lord. And I'm sure you realize the connection in our modern time. There are many people who just don't want to hear it. Because the truth is hard. It's not convenient. But it will set you free. Here's the positive thing. If you heed to the truth, it will actually set you free. Now I'm going to show you a positive one. It's in 2 Chronicles 15. And let's keep turning to the right. Is that right? Yeah. Keep going towards the New Testament. 2 Chronicles. Uh, look at chapter 15. I want to show you a positive example. This is actually a text that we're going to study at our men's retreat. Now, the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded. 2 Chronicles 15, 2. He went out to meet Asa, said to him, Listen to me, Asa. All Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. 2 Chronicles 15, 3. For many days Israel was without the true God, without a teaching priest, without law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel. They sought him, and he let them find him. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. For many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands, and nation was crushed by nation, city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. Sound familiar? But you, says the prophet, be strong. Do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. Now when Asa heard these words and the prophecy, which Azariah the son of Oded, the prophet, spoke, he took courage. Notice the positive. And he removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He then restored the altar of the Lord, which was in front of the porch of the Lord. And we could go on there, but let me just say that there's two examples of ways that we can respond to the Word of God. We can despise it. We can try to jail the Word of God, but you can't imprison the Word of God, says Paul. Or we can hear it and respond to it. And actually say, what God says, I'm going to do. If i got to clean up this area. If this altar needs to go down, if this false God needs, needs to be demolished out of my life, out of my marriage, out of my walk, out of my ministry, that needs to go so I can obey God. Amen? And, what? Huh? Oh, you guys are out there. Okay. And we're all learning, right? We're learning to hear the Word of God James says, don't be deceived. If you just are merely a hearer of the word and not a doer, you are self-deluded. That's the worst kind of deception, to hear God's word and not act upon it. You're like a foolish man who built his house on the sand instead of on the rock. So the positive example here of the king Asa and uh, let's, let me show you one more. 2 Chronicles 36, just a little bit more to your right. 2 Chronicles 36. Here's Zedekiah. He was 21 years old. Verse 11, 2 Chronicles 36, 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not, verse 12, humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. He stiffened his neck, hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Down to 15. The Lord God, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people, sent prophets again and again and again. Jesus mentions this 
when he's lamenting over Jerusalem. On his people, he had compassion on his dwelling place, the temple. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, God's words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, in the New Testament, there's a specific example of this, and I'm not going to turn you there, but I think you're familiar with it. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus addresses seven churches in Asia Minor. He assesses them. He walks among the church, and he says, this is what you got going well for you. Good job. This is what I have against you. I want you to correct it. Lest I remove your lampstand. Many believe that is your influence in the city will wane. You will no longer shine for me if you don't fix this. Churches, even in New Testament context, are assessed by the Lord of the church. And he is favorable towards many of the churches in many things. He says, you're doing this well, you do, but, but you've left your first love or you got to fix this. And when the Lord of the church says this, we hear this refrain, I think, every time. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, says to the churches. The Lord is over his church and he uses the sanctifying work of the Spirit to speak to us primarily through the Word of God. And if God speaks, the question is, do I obey? Do I say, Lord, whatever you say goes? I'm not going to look for the fine print. I'm not going to try to wiggle out of this. I'm going to obey you. There's where the blessing is. Now, some of you are saying, a prophetic utterance, was this a occurrence in the New Testament church, well, I think if you read 1 Corinthians 14, you will see that there were gifts of prophecy that were active in the early church. And some people believe that there's a gift of prophecy today not adding to the inspired word of God. That's done and closed. But that someone could get a prophetic word and speak it to a, spe a specific situation, and it could be from the Holy Spirit. And then there's other people who say, no, that... That was the first century, and once the Bible was established and at the death of the last apostle, that gift is no longer in operation because we have a completed Bible. And that is an in-house debate between cessationists on the one hand and Pentecostals on the other, and oftentimes we find ourselves perhaps somewhere in between. Let me tell you a quick story. I heard a story about a missionary who was from Chicago. She was a young lady. She decided to go out on the mission field. And she was going to this people group that she had no familiarity with. And it was a foreign language, so they would need interpreters. And she ended up in this village. And uh, there was a bunch of people around. And it was a dark place. And there, the gospel had not permeated it. And she said, this is her testimony, that there was a prophecy in the village. I don't know how it happened. That the people of the village needed to listen to a woman from Chicago who would teach them about the true and living God. And those people asked the, through the translator, is there anyone here from Chicago? <laughs> now we're talking about like in the bush somewhere. And the girl went, me, I'm from there. And they said, we need to listen to you because we got a prophecy that you're going to tell us about the true and living God. And she preached the gospel. So God can do miracles like that. I don't know if that's the norm, but certainly God can do something like that. We can't put God in a box, but we have to be careful because if you say you're prophesying on behalf of the Lord and you say something like this, thus says the Lord, you shall go to dinner at this Mexican restaurant tonight. <laughs> never, never mind that. <laughs> anyway, you better be careful that you know it's the Lord, amen? And sometimes if you feel like you're getting something, you better... Measure that and weigh that and make sure it's God. I know uh, I've heard of some pastors who said they were doing on-field counseling at a crusade. And the Lord gave them insight into what was happening in people's lives without them knowing it beforehand. Like they saw something or they got a word from the Lord. There's words of wisdom, words of knowledge in 1 Corinthians 12. So, you know, 
I'm, I'm always cautiously open, but we're going to see in a moment that we examine everything carefully. The prophets are subject to the prophets, 1 Corinthians 14 says. So we weigh everything carefully. We weigh it against Scripture. We weigh it against biblical counsel and so forth. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 and 3 says, Pursue love, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification or strengthening, for exhortation and consolation. So if the gift of prophecy is being employed, and I would argue primarily it's going to be us giving encouragement from Bible verses we already have primarily. It will be for edification, building up, exhortation, which is to challenge and exhort and consolation to comfort brokenhearted people. You want to write down these verses, write down 1 Corinthians 14, 1 and 3, and 1 Corinthians 29 through, I'm sorry, chapter 14, 29 through 33. It ends this way, God is not the God of confusion, but of peace in all the churches of the saints. There shouldn't be any confusion. If someone brings something and it's actually from the Lord, it won't confuse you. It's just going to probably verify something that you've already been wrestling with and you need a word from the Lord. Here's an example. Some years ago, I was struggling uh, one evening, and I just said, Lord, I need to hear from you. I need to hear from you. And a man emailed me a verse about that God is the God of encouragement. Uh, out of the blue, he rarely ever emailed me, and he, felt, he said, I feel like the Lord wants you to have this verse. And I got an email pretty much right after I said, in Jesus' name, I need to hear from you. Amen. An email came with a Bible verse, and it was actually Romans 15, 4, that God gives us encouragement and perseverance, and we learn from what was written in earlier times. Do I believe God can do that? Yes. Do I believe he primarily uses Bible verses to do that? Yes. But I'm still always cautiously open to how he might speak to me in different ways or even speak to my heart. So we don't despise those things. Don't despise prophetic utterances. 21. Now here's the way to weigh it all. But we examine, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, we test everything carefully and we hold fast to that which is good. After Paul left Thessalonica, he said, uh, Luke says he went to Berea and the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they tested what Paul said to see if what he was saying was true. These are the Bereans, more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, which is the first New Testament letter that Paul wrote around A.D. 49. What do we learn from that? That people were even willing to test Paul. And if a preacher is behind a pulpit or on a television screen or on the radio, it doesn't mean that everything they say is biblically accurate or true. You need to weigh it. Amen? You need to test it. I, I've had times when I'm in my living room and I'll turn on uh, uh, the television and I'll see a preacher up there and he's butchering a text and I begin to speak to my television. That is not the context of that verse. That is nonsense. It's like when I speak to the coaches of my favorite teams. I believe that they should hear me and make in-game adjustments according to the counsel of my will. Can I get a witness? Anybody? Right? Well, I do that sometimes with preaching. This is nonsense. One time I remember this guy was butchering this text, and it was like a word faith thing. And I was yelling at the TV, just read two verses down, and it will explain this, and it will debunk what he's saying. Just go two verses down. Do it! And people were in the audience, yeah, yeah. I'm saying, what are you yan amen and about? It's false, right? I don't, maybe Pastor Michael, if that's you. <laughs> well, here's the, here's the exhortation. You had the two negatives, right? You, you have do not, do not, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances. We'll have a third in a moment, but here's, here's what we do. We examine everything. And by the way, even though it's in the setting of prophecy and not quenching the spirit, here I believe this is, this is kind of a universal, a general exhortation. Examine everything. Please know what's going on. 
Don't hide your head in the sand. Do your homework on your Bible. Do your homework on what's going on politically. Examine things carefully. And then do what? Hold fast to what's good and right and true. you got to weigh that. Your job, according to this verse, is to weigh things, especially as it relates to the Word of God. You're to do it carefully, and then you're to hold fast to what's good. What's good? See the word examine there? It's the Greek word dakimatso. It was used to, for the testing of the quality of metals. So this is what we do. We test everything, and we hold fast to what is good. And then this third negative exhortation, we abstain or avoid NIV every form of evil. When you're holding fast to what's good, that means you're avoiding what's evil. The word abstain there is a strong word that means hold oneself away from it. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, we were told to abstain from sexual immorality. That's what we do. As a Christian, you weigh what's good and what's evil. And even though the world is confusing what's good and, and what's evil and calling evil good and good evil, your job is to discern what's good. And how could you do that unless you know what God says? Amen? You've got to know the Word of God to discern the will of God. And that's why the church of God needs the Word of God. Not a 20-minute sermonette. Not, you know... Let's just tickle the ears and tell them what they want to hear. You're a champion. You're great. You're fantastic. Go take on the day. And you're like, no, I need a word from the Lord. I looked at my heart this week, and fantastic was the last word I used. Help, Lord. Help. And that's when the word of God comes like a fire into the innermost being and begins to do its transforming work. I need God's word. I don't need to look in the mirror more. I need God's word. I need to avoid what's evil. Abstain from it. Avoid it. See the word form there? Every form of evil. A little debate among scholars. It's the Greek word eidos. E-I-D-O-S. The word can mean what is outwardly appearing evil. Or it can mean every kind of evil. Even like the species, like uh, different species in classical Greek, according to Eusebius. Could be an outward appearance of evil, but more specifically, every kind of evil. A little debate here, because in the Christian church, we've realized that even if we're not doing something evil, we should avoid appearances of evil. And there are some people who argue that that is the meaning of this text. And I would say that's a possible meaning give you a quick story. I went out to lunch with a brother and sister that um, are great people from a great family. And uh, we're at a restaurant. We're seated outside. This is some time ago. Uh, the young lady was college age and her brother was a little bit younger. And we were just fellowshipping and I was encouraging them and so forth. And he got up to go to the restroom. And I was seated there with just the young lady. And I was like, you know, if someone from the church uh, cruises by right now, hey, Pastor Michael, how you doing? Good, man. <laughs> I'm great. Uh, well, who's this? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> you know. Now, should I be in that spot? You know, maybe, maybe, is that over the top? I don't know. I'll let you decide. But I went and refilled my drink until he got back. <laughs> okay? Just, just looking to keep everything... Good, right? I'm going to get a refill. I'll be right back. Time I return to the table. Everything's good. Now, is that how we are required to live? I'll let you wrestle with it. But I'll tell you this. That is a nuance of the word which certainly is justified. There's others that argue that the word uh, is just every time evil appears or every sort or kind of evil um, I will tell you, it's probably both. I think it means every time there's a visible, various form or kind of evil that comes your way, you need to avoid it. Or even things that appear to be evil, 
Now, if we have a bunch of legalists around who are always trying to condemn everybody and be the legal police, you know, then, then I think you got to consider that because you don't want to live in bondage to legalists either. Everybody know what I'm saying? So you got to find, find that biblical uh, balance here. Now, we end with a beautiful benediction. Now, 23, may the God of peace himself, and remember I told you this text has been all about worship and sanctification. May he himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming, that's our word parousia, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, Ephesians 5, 26, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present him Present to himself the church in all her glory, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, your sanctification is forward-looking. You should be thinking about the return of Christ and being spotless and blameless and joyful in his presence. You should not be thinking about shrinking back in shame when he comes, but rather saying, yes, Maranatha, I've been doing your business since you've been gone. Praise the Lord. Let's get on the train and go to the millennial reign. Everybody with me? That's what Paul wants. Now, some people see spirit, soul, and body, and they take what's called a trichotomous view of humanity. Uh, some are dichotomous. They believe spirit and soul are synonymous. I don't have time to get into it, but I'll just say this. Here's probably what's more important. See the order that God wants to work in your life. Spirit, soul, and then body. Amen? He wants you to be holy in all aspects, but God works from the inside out, not the outside in. And then some final uh, farewells. Faithful is he who calls you. Another reminder that what God started in you, he will finish. He will also bring it to pass. Paul asked for prayer. Brethren, pray for us. And then he says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. <laughs> now, you heard a woo in the front row because this is a man who practices the holy kiss. Right here, his name is Paul. And uh, just be careful. I would just say, try to avoid him if you can. No. <laughs> Right now, we're all being careful with the COVID. Yeah. Isn't it weird? Hey, what are, what are you doing? Are you doing this? Are you doing just this? Are you, what are you doing? Are you doing the air hug? Are you doing a, it's like, some people are just like, come here, man. All right. <laughs> You've been screened. You've been tested. Little temperature thing in your pocket. <laughs> but let me tell you the bigger thing here. The church the early church loved each other. They loved each other. And they can trace the uh, European kiss on both cheeks all the way back to Jesus, really. All the way back to the New Testament. That's why it's important that we're together, amen? Because a screen, a sermon on a video screen can be helpful, but there's nothing like being with the body and loving each other. I'll let you decide whether the Holy Kiss should be implemented now or after the election. Uh, what? <laughs> yep, I said it. Anyway, <laughs> I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. I always love when we finish a book because it's just... Feels good, doesn't it? Just to go through a book of the Bible and see how the Holy Spirit put it together. Now, we are going to have a moment here where we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And I would ask you to kind of maybe just stay in the Spirit right now, kind of reorient your gaze to the grace of God as we, uh, let's take our elements here and open them up. I love the fact that the many of the letters of the New Testament, they open and end with grace, and grace is best seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. And these are familiar verses to us, but I tell you, taking communion together has become so much more precious uh, as we've been 
not able to do it for quite some time. And uh, we, I think the first time we, we had done it in about six months was actually last month. And the Bible simply says this, Paul writing says on what I received from the Lord that I delivered to you. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, we are very grateful that you came and died for us. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you so loved the world that you gave him for us. Thank you for sending Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to us. To be with us, to comfort and help us, to empower us to sanctify us, to help us with the fruits of the Spirit. We're not alone. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be with us and lead us all the way home. Thank you for the, Father, for you, for your Son, for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the triune God. Sometimes it's even difficult to articulate words that could even come close to who you are. But what's so amazing is that you loved us. The God who spoke the world into existence, the God who came down in, on that Bethlehem night, the God who went to the cross, the God-man who suffered and died in our place, the one who said in the upper room, I'm not going to leave you all alone. It's to your advantage that I go away. I will send you a helper. You're going to make it. You're going to be okay. Lord, we need to hear that in our day where there's so much uncertainty and trials that we all face. We're going to make it. You have not left us as orphans. You're going to bring us safely home. And if you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this would be a great time to make sure you know him. Cry out to him. Say, Lord, forgive me. I repent of my sin. I trust you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for coming on the rescue mission to save me. I want to follow you as my shepherd and my king. I want to do what you say because I know you have the best in mind for my life. Forgive me for the times that I've despised your word and Push it away. Quench the spirit in my life. Save me. Maybe you're a prodigal and you've been despising God's word for a while. Maybe you've been, even been mocking it. Maybe you grew up in the church and you've been mocking it with your friends. You know, God loves you despite that. And he'll welcome you right back home. And then, Father, for this dear, wonderful church body, bless them, Lord. Keep us strong in the faith and continuing to walk with you each and every day. In Jesus' name.